0: CHAPTERS 9 TO 11 OF MARRIAGE, ITS ETHIC AND RELIGION BY P.T. FORSYTH. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. SIX. A CONSERVATIVE SANCTUARY. SOCIETY, THEREFORE, OUGHT TO BE IMMOVABLE IN THIS MATTER. The farther in we go upon the sacred, subtle, even subconscious parts of our nature, so much the nearer we come to the central shrine where the waves of change scarcely reach. We come to the diamond axis upon which all change revolves. We reach the conservative sanctuary which makes all progress safe, because it harbors and gathers in repose the creative power that makes progress at all possible. It is a region beyond the reach of our new schemes and systems, and the most sacred part of our nature abut upon it. Upon it give those windows of our being, which open as magic casements upon mystic seas. In this region reside the slow influences that mould us in marriage and family these are powers that easily escape our chronic levity and what carlyle called our snigger at the universe we cannot readily weigh them for they are not entirely in the domain of our conscience they are often beneath it of all social institutions in the natural realm the family is that which has the most deep and unconscious effect on us how else is it that death and loss reveal to us in heart agony the depth of a relation which was growing up We know not how, amid all the routines and trifles of day after day, and closing in upon our heart, as it were, with strong but transparent walls, which were for us as if they were not, till we found ourselves cut to the bone among their splinters. Amid all the happy give and take of common life, and common joys and common cares, We were being subtly bound with a network of ties, which, when they are torn out, take our hearts in bleeding pieces with them. It has taken society a very long time to grow in this discipline. Ages and ages of social evolution are registered in our submission to such fine bonds, and our lacing by such silken threads and the fabric is as firm as the slow deposit of coral islands upon the ocean's bed which both rise to the top and spread to each other till an archipelago becomes a continent you cannot trace here the swift progress you freely mark elsewhere we are here among the great solemn and abiding things so that, if ever this institution had to be changed, it would require a combination of all the best and greatest forces of the whole race, all its most spiritual forces, working from its deepest heart. The social program-makers are here no more than pygmies pottering at the base of Olympus. To dissolve the great divine triad of father, mother, child, would require a force equal at least to that which has made society itself. It is far beyond the theories of social system mongers or the heresies of intellectuals. Monogamy is not an artificial institution forced down on mankind, but a spiritual institution rising out of it. And in any case, whatever changes come must be so slow as to be almost imperceptible at any one point of time. The quest is all too new and young yet to effect such hoary and venerable practice. Marriage is a far more permanent institution than any other. Nothing can affect it which is attempted from either the man's side alone or the woman's. It could be changed only from the interaction of both for their action on the child and on the future of which the child is trustee. Women, at least, should realize that they can do nothing in this direction by writing on erotic lines, but only by making the sex a greater and greater factor in the ethic of the race. And this they can never do by devoting themselves to love as a free passion, as an explosive under the pillars of society, but to love as a moral power carrying society. Not to love that looses, but the love that binds. Not to the love that releases for enjoyment, but to the love that commits to sacrifice and all that women win upon other fields of life will culminate and be registered in their effect upon the ethics of love all the progress they may make has its value only as it tells for their growth in power upon the race at its centre of delicate dignity and moral taste the growing power of the life of love lies in the line of its moral refinement and if the age of chivalry and idolatry towards women is gone It is because we are rising to the age of a truer sanctity in women. The chivalry men feel to them can only continue if it rise, if it is uplifted by the sanctity women feel in themselves and their surrender. They must be in a position and in a mood to dwell less upon love's fantasy and more on its sanctity. They must be educated less by romances that tickle them and more by spiritual powers that rule them. And they must strengthen men in that direction, for, as one writer says, people make too much of mere love, both in modern life and modern art, and that is at the bottom of so much of the sickliness and weakness of our time. 7. Love's dignity and sincerity. Leasehold marriage is said to be in the interest of the reality of sexual relations. Under the proposed conditions, people could separate without fuss when they grew incompatible and the relation became hollow. It is asked, do we increase the sanctity of marriage by putting it above its truth and reality? We only create Pharisaism. The answer is, one, that if marriage could be dissolved by consent, there would then be no motive to discipline those faults that easily become magnified into incompatibility the idea of mutual discipline would not enter into marriage at all as to so many it never does they plead they must be themselves and not immolate their individuality there would be no thought of marriage acting as a school of moral reality two the truth and reality of marriage would too easily be identified with the life of mere passion or romance and the decay of that flush would soon become a charter for vagrancy and its hollowness. 3. The fixity of marriage is the moral condition for converting the decay of passion into the growth of real affection, especially under Christian culture and power. 4. Is there no pharisaism, no unreality, where human beings, who were made with a moral nature for supremely moral issues, disguise the fact even to themselves and masquerade in a light vesture of passion or preference alone the man supremely ruled by passion is a fraud to human nature man it has been said is more than an erotic process and this more means obligation responsibility the freedom of his soul against the vagrancy of the moment's appetite and the slavery of chance desires And if he ignores this, he is not only living in unreality, he is not only severed from the great moral whole which gives him his reality, but he is crumbling and hollow within, and the whole economy of his soul is going to pieces. He may pass through moral priggery to pharisaism of his own subtle kind. It is not love that is free with him. It is not the great love, but the small passion, which dries up in its own heat. What is free is the infidelity of his egoism and the love of impatient change, and for a man to live in that freedom is to live in a falsity and a pharisaism to his true nature and best self. It is impossible that two legitimate forms of marriage could exist alongside, without one of them being rated as inferior and so treated in society. What would happen if that one were permanent marriage? and if it were the other, the object of the propaganda I discuss would be lost. It wants the concubine to be as well received as the wife. 6. The plea of the old ethic, it will have been seen, is sometimes adopted by the new. It is owned that the object of marriage is the development of the moral personality, but it pleaded that in a vast number of cases life marriage not only destroys the moral personality but prevents a union that would develop it the answer is manifold and has in part been given already a reflect on the educative influence through ages of the idea of an institution The idea of life marriage not only moulds a character of self-restraint and service, but also slowly lifts through ages the idea and tone of social life. b. There are moral influences available, especially in Christianity, which can sanctify the disappointment of many unsatisfactory marriages for both parties, and even tap a new spring of affection. The love ceasing to be instinctive passion changes into a new application of Christian love and moral kindness c. The cure would be worse than the disease, especially so long as legal separation is possible as a remedy. It is not mere love that is the source of the moral education, but love with the moral element of fidelity, holy love. But the new ethic rests on the idea of freedom, on the mere resentment of restraint. I must be my true, complete, and harmonious self. That is what is known as the cult of personality turned Kant it is the morbid passion for a superior egoism it is the pharisaism of the new cult as if twere growing like a tree all rounds that made man better be it cultivates a forest of self-contained pines not a society of generous men with a boundless contiguity of shade It is the aristocratic ethic of individual culture at any price. It is not the nobly democratic ethic which rears the individuals as members one of another. Freedom is certainly one condition of moral discipline, but the source of discipline is not freedom but control, obedience, experience. True freedom is the effect of discipline, not its cause.' The advocates of this system seem, in some respects, to lack knowledge of the world or the insight that interprets them. That many women are said to favour it shows it to be based largely on lack of knowledge of life. It is the fantasy of incorrigible utopians, sheltered idealists or inexperienced optimists. The best that can be said for this new ethic turns upon the cult of personality. But the cult of personality without the higher cult of authority is the cult of mere self-will. And one cannot conceive of any moral authority compatible with such free love. It can be prosecuted only by the repudiation of authority. No moral authority could sanction it and remain an authority. No real authority could be so fatal to society as such liberty would be. 8. Leasehold marriage is fundamentally wrong because it starts from the postulate that love is in its nature a fickle thing, and it asks for deliberate and public recognition of the fact. It seeks to reorganize society in the interest of the doctrine that love is in its nature fugitive, and yet it claims to act in the name and interest of a love which fixed marriage tends to debase. Could you have a stable society on the foundation of a soluble base? We do believe that society is on a stable base on the whole, whatever revolutions may take place. But we could not continue to trust that, if we came to think that the chief cement of society was such a poor adhesive. We should feel society was but gummed together and not built. Love is half dead when it begins by admitting and even parading that it can die. I have already alluded to the educative effect on the public mind of the conception of love which is embedded in indissoluble monogamy it is the great register of the moral progress of society nine it has been seen that it is a vice of the leasehold system that it tends to substitute erotic for ethic to treat passion devoid of the moral element as the justification of a union even as its sanctification And here I should like to make some very relevant protest against the extent to which the interests of the heart, whether sentimental or passionate, are allowed to monopolize the attention of the young, and form them at the plastic time. It may be in the way of religion, or it may be in the way of literature, or the drama, or it may be by social intercourse. The idea of love, which is only too ready to monopolize the years of adolescence, is encouraged and even forced to the destruction of intelligence on the one hand, and of conscience on the other, to say nothing of reverence for love itself. Just as in religion we have a mawkish culture of charity and urbanity which makes men indifferent to either truth or justice, so you have an atmosphere of sentiment. Or a world of passion which fills the mind to the exclusion of the nobler and firmer concerns of character. Jowett of Balliol protested against the extent to which the thoughts and imaginations of youth were occupied with the love interests, especially through poetry, as if nothing were really interesting to the young but the opposite sex. He was not thinking, nor am I, of the vicious side of it, he meant the obsession, by sentiment, which is innocent enough to the neglect of other and greater concerns, the hypertrophy of this side of things in both sexes, especially in men, which destroys the virile note, puts upon religion itself a subjective and sickly caste, and destroys the force of its protest for moral issues. What is the public value of the moral protests which are raised from soft religion? Who attends to the public ethic of sweet sentimentalists, Obsession of this kind should be countered by the promotion of sport, the earnestness of education, the provision of some positive moral education, the rescue of the universities from being mere social opportunities, the opening of careers to women, their invitation into social activities, and the dropping of the coaxing and even coddling note on the part of the churches in dealing with the young. By many such things might such an obsession be qualified and corrected. For the worst of it is that even when the interest of the one sex in the other is quite natural and innocent, yet if it is made almost the whole concern, it produces a soil and climate which the supremacy of passion finds but too congenial as soon as a fiery temptation comes. You pile up tinder for any spark. What is being done, even by religion, for the moral education of youth as compared with its popular appeal to the sympathetic and impulsive? And is the result as valuable as the product is, say, in Captain Courageous, where, without a woman in the process at all, a little horror caught in time is brought up by man's hand and God's see to be the manliest of men? THE EFFECT OF LITERATURE What I say has a special bearing on literature and on the literature of fiction in particular. I am not, for the moment, discussing novel reading as mere fictional hypertrophy. I am not thinking of the overdevelopment of the imaginative side of character at the cost of the intelligent or the practical. I am not concerned, for the moment, with the statistics of libraries as to the excess of novels issued over what is called more solid reading. I quite recognise that the incessant tickling of the imagination and the sympathies must be bad for both, and there is the old argument about the waste on imaginary cases of that pity which should have inspired action to help actual cases, but I leave that aside. Moreover I recognise and I prize the immense number of stories and poems whose educative influence on the affections can only be good unless they make us forget that there are other things that need educating than the affections, for the very sake of the affections themselves, that knowledge, no less than feeling, is required for the heart's just, full and reasonable life. It is demoralizing for affection to be made to think so much about itself, just as it is a bad religion that is always thinking and talking about religion, and it is the preacher's peril. What I am thinking of is the preoccupation of this imaginative literature which forms the staple of young reading with the love interest. My complaint is against the abuse of even pure fiction which never takes the reader out of the region of sexual sentiment. And my fear is that preoccupation with such fiction creates a social atmosphere in which it is too easy to become engrossed with bad fiction, fiction which no censorship could repress, but which tends wrong. Tendency here is more serious than teaching, and all writing tends wrong however correct, which promotes in any way the idea, which I call erotic, that passion is its own law, is the one thing that matters in life, and is the real foundation of the union of sex. It is a great calamity that such education as the heart receives owes so much more to fugitive literature than to the church or the family at the present hour. Here again we should speak with care, for novels are now part of education, and there are of course no few favourites that are not only perfectly healthy but unconsciously educative in the soundest way. They betray an author no less wise and kind as a mentor than happy as a storyteller. But these are apt to be regarded as not strong enough food for the emancipated and forthright. The worst of the literary treatment of this subject is that happy marriage is no literary asset. It does not lend itself to acute literary effect. If we were guided only by the poetry, fiction or drama of the day, and I am thinking of an area much wider than England, we might conclude that there were few other interests for a man or woman than love, especially irregular love, but few happy marriages as the result i do not say for a moment that fiction should not handle such subjects fiction presents or interprets life and they play a powerful part in life but they are exceptional and solemn tragedies and one objects to their becoming a daily entertainment as novel after novel is read turning on that motive or plays are seen novels and plays too in which the solemnity of the matter is stripped away and the subject becoming an exploitable idea acquires a pedestrian or even vulgar note to tickle the groundling's curiosity or fill the idlest hour. Or it may be that the wit is hard, cynical and irresponsible, while the ethic is offensively anti-Christian. Of course there are many unhappy marriages, often due to the poverty of social opportunity, or the crudity of our social stage of progress, or to that bad education of the heart of which I speak. There are many marriages which do not continue the romantic, rhapsodic, Byronic idea of love, which makes such an element in the fiction of women for women. Are they therefore failures? Married life is often ruined by the notion that the ideal marriage should be found ready-made, that two people should expect to settle down into it as they would into the enjoyment of a house presented to them ready-decorated and furnished for a lifetime, and that its happiness should come and remain without effort or discipline. The truth that needs teaching and is not taught is that the ideal marriage, like the ideal personality, grows that the true appropriation of this gift is the heart-culture of a lifetime. It does not drop ripe into our mouth. It is the fruit of difficulty, pain, sacrifice, and it is not quite unacquainted with friction. Reckon on such things and turn them to moral account. Tiffs are not tragedies. It is childish, as soon as the clouds begin, to drop, to think that heaven is burst. A happy marriage depends on the way these things are handled, and not their entire absence. And a mistake is not irreparable. Of course statistics are not possible on such a subject, but when all is said, there is a huge average of those happy and affectionate marriages, which it is the literary fashion to call humdrum, because they do not make copy, because they do not have thrills, because the literary interest lies so largely in the tragic or sensational or because it still labours with the old stage direction that marriage ends all, marriage begins all. The number of plays or novels that turn upon the breach or the failure of marriage would make us bad pessimists if we based our diagnosis of actual society on what the writers present. If the young are encouraged to think too much about licit affection, the married are encouraged to an interest too great in illicit But after all, the theatre is not England, the literary circle is not society, as Paris is not France. And even when we note the popularity of stories presenting a life of friction and a dismal close, we are cheered to think that there must be an immense amount of verve, happiness and optimism among the people who can read such things. They must also be largely read by too comfortable people, who never come into contact with life's care or tragedy except in their easy chair i do not suppose doctors lawyers or ministers read much of the pessimist or spasmodic novel they have their hearts harrowed by the real thing which imagination should enable us either to glorify or to forget and should not merely reproduce and exploit so when one notes the appetite for novels and plays which turn on married infidelity and heartbreak one may perhaps reflect that there must be much wholesome and fearless wedlock in the inquisitive audiences that enjoy such things they represent something like dukedoms which does not enter the life of that public It is not easy to think of any member of a family being able to bear the representation of such things if they had actually invaded it. You cannot, it is said, speak of a rope among the relatives of the hanged. I am sure, therefore, that much of the laxity that invades our idea of marriage is due to what Carlyle so rejoiced in, the literary person as priest or mentor, with the higher naturalism as his capital." And it is a fact bound to have serious consequences for ethic and society that our youth forms such ideas as it has upon these matters from its favourite literature, chiefly from novels whose only religion is but inflated passion, and seldom from serious and studious teachers of social ethic, or from the one teacher of Christian ethic, the Church. I am not asking if that is the fault of the Church's teachers in avoiding or neglecting such subjects. To an extent it is, but I am only noting the fact, and it is particularly unfortunate in regard to the moral culture of women. It may be said that that is most affected by the romantic way, by the stories they read. Now apart from those writers who are contemptuous of ethics in treatment of passion, and apart from those who hate Christian ethics in particular, the capital of all but the very greatest imaginative writers is the passions per se and especially the passion of love, and their principle is apt to be, love is enough, with a tendency to pass on and say, love is its own law. I have already regretted that the minds of the young are so filled, and even stuffed with the idea of such love. It stirs the regret, not only of such teachers, as I have named, but of earnest writers in other countries. I am not here, of course, speaking of sensual passion. In some ways, that does less mischief than fantastic or platonic passion passion imaginative and transferable ever let the fancy roam fancy never is at home passion is saved by the element which raises love above not the sensuous only but also the fantastic to the faithful and the moral and platonic affection mostly ends in plutonic The capital of the storyteller is natural love, and an infinite variety of fantasias are played on its elemental notes, and there is an incessant titillation of those interests and that side of the nature. Natural love comes to be the one interest life has for many such minds. The supremacy of such love becomes the only principle that quickens life. Religion, which should rule life, has no creative or regulative place. What novelist handles the soul? And unhappily some forms of religion encourage that note. We even have erotic religion. People are told in all kinds of ways that God is love, and Christianity is the religion of love, people whose one idea of love is natural affection. Holy demand goes out of sight. God is offered as the glorification of natural affection, or its benediction. And the only ethic such a religion knows is an ethic of allowance or pity, not of the holy. It all cooperates subconsciously with the habit of a literary age to make morality imaginative at best and sentimental at worst. It canonizes natural and instinctive humanity and makes religion itself egoistic. And to such a frame of mind where worship is unknown where obedience but goals where sympathy is the one living thing where all above us is but a dark and often tragic fate where all beyond us is a dreary desert with the old lights quenched by death and nothing but mist coming down i say to such a frame of mind the suggestion of temporary marriage comes with a certain plausibility as recognizing the sanctity of love alone in the union and as ending the pharisaism of union where love fades from its first glow. The idea of leasehold marriage, I have said, rests on such erotic alone, and not upon faith or ethic. It rests on the fallacy that passion alone consecrates union, and passion in its intensity rather than its quality. That is eroticism. And it will even venture to press into its service much current talk of Christianity, and of its ethic as the ethic of love augustine is ignorantly quoted love and do as you will john is rested and debased who dwelleth in love dwelleth in god but there is more in love than passion however great or imaginative the love that hallows marriage has a moral nature in it and a moral society round it and christianity is not the religion of love but of holy and therefore atoning love which makes it all the more divine as it makes it less, promptly, popular. It is the religion of a love which holds of the eternal and works under moral and social conditions, and as such holy love it is very different from that natural and instinctive love which makes literary capital or suits imaginative purposes, so that it makes but poor stories and prescribes a much more serious ethic than we like in the hours when we take refuge in fiction it is this moral and holy element in love that is the christian soul of married love at last we speak truly of holy matrimony it is this holy this moral element in marriage that distinguishes it from mere contract which unites natural instinct pure and steady as the instinct may often be And because of this moral element, both state and church are not merely interested in marriage, but it is both a churchly and a civil institution, even the crucial meeting point of state and church, as we shall soon see. And the object of a religious ceremony in marriage is not simply to make things sweet and decorous, nor to be an opportunity for edification, but it moralizes marriage from a height where man has his final destiny in God, and where the moral is the holy it is the way of the wild poet to speak of love as a holy thing in itself but it is nothing of the kind unless we reduce religion to refined naturalism sacred you may perhaps call it but not holy and the new ethic which is based on naturalism erotic or pity We have seen going on to say not only that motherhood is holy, but that all motherhood is holy, that the right to a child belongs to every woman, and that we should drop the cruel bar that society places between motherhood, married and single. Such extreme claims are truly not very loud here, at least not yet. But abroad, they are not only loud, but public and powerful, promoted by most effective writers of both sexes. And they will be here ere long, for the books are being translated and preachers enlisted. England does not get the first shock of these revolutionary blasts, but they always reach us in the end, and we ought to be ready in advance. And we ought to be clear that sentiment is no foundation for morals, that passion does not contain its own law, that even proper pity and private mercy for the misled mother cannot prescribe the law of society in such a central matter." Let us use every kind of philanthropic means to help the victims and mitigate the curse. Let us see that the seducer and deserter gets his due. But philanthropy is not ethic. Pity is not morality. It certainly is not the base of public morality, and society cannot live on a mercy which takes no note of the holy any more than a church can. To much love much is forgiven, but it has to be forgiven, and a great love if it be no more than a passion, can lead men and women into the very things which require most forgiveness, and yet make public forgiveness as hard as Christ's cross. Much has to be forgiven in an agony by holy love to guilty, to a soul's supreme love diverted upon man alone. The chief guilt of most men is made by their treatment of some form of love, human or divine. And the great tragedy of life is not the failure of love, but the failure which led to it, The failure of faith. One thing more, it is easy for social Pharisees or starveling natures to take high and mighty ground on such matters and to lay down prescriptions and proscriptions which in their spirit may be farther than the sinners from the kingdom of heaven. It is hoped that nothing here said may sound pitiless towards those to whom, as Plato says, love comes as a mania on whom it lies like a doom, and works as a sapphic curse rather than a Christian blessing. Let those who resent the exigency of Christian ethic here remember that it came from no bloodless spirit, but from the greatest love that ever entered history, and from its lovers, from the great soul that ever sought mankind from one whose heart broke in the passion of hallowing of that holy love which it knew to be the most powerful priceless and perfect thing in all the world and the guarantee of its richest and conclusive bliss epilogue it is one of the unhappy features of our time that the most deep and far-reaching issues are referred for a verdict to so many minds that have never been taught by any due training to realize their real ground and their immense and searching effects, minds that dismiss all that is not journalistic as academic, and prefer the amateur to the seer or the sage. The questions involved in sex are among these. Next to religion they raise the most momentous and solemn issues for all history. Most men who come to grief, it has been said, wreck either upon God or upon woman and yet both orders of question are handled i do not say merely with a levity of manner but with a levity of mind which is not only unworthy but incompetent and unfertile and may entail great peril for the future i trust these pages may contribute something to mitigate the violence of this anomaly and to raise our interest to the range and dignity of matters with which our society has so intimately and eternally to do end of chapters 9 to 11 End of Marriage, Its Ethic and Religion by P.T. Forsyth.